Well, good morning to the remnant. Glad that you are not in Florida, where most people are. I'm glad that you are here. We're in week number three of volume two of our series, uh, The Guardians, where today I'm going to look at the value of live. We looked at B in week number one. No last week with Pastor Dan. This week we are going to look at the theme of live. Now, uh, Christians are people, I said in week number one, who through grace and by faith have been placed into Christ, and because we are in Christ, Christ is in us. And the Holy Spirit, who mediates the presence of Christ to us as children of God, takes the life of Christ within the child of God and expresses that life uh, through us. So in other words, the, the word live, in this sense, is basically a verb. It, it demands action. And the principal action that we're going to see in chapter 3 of a child of God is that they live faithfully devoted to Christ. Now, this faithful devotion doesn't mean that we are uh, to be perfect, but it does mean that we are increase, increasingly experiencing the death of the reign of sin. Uh, that's basically what we're talking about here. Now, how this works has been beautifully uh, phrased by Martin Luther, the German reformer, who many, many years ago wrote these words, and I just love these words. Look at them. He says this, this life, therefore, is, is not godliness, but the process of becoming godly. It's not health, but it's getting well. It's not being, but becoming. It's not rest, but exercise. We are not now what we shall be, but we are on the way. The process is not yet finished, but it's actively going on. This is not the goal, but it is the right road. At present, everything does not gleam and sparkle, but everything is being cleansed. Luther pictures perfectly there what it means to live in Christ and for Christ to live in us. Now, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in chapter 3, uh, Paul is going to contrast his life with the life of other teachers. Paul's central claim in this chapter is going to be found in verse 8, echoed in verse… Um, ec proclaimed in verse 5, echoed in verse 8, and then it's from that basis that the famous words of Scripture in verses 14 through 17 uh, are actually found. The central claim is that Christ has the power to change minds and transform hearts. And so in this chapter, Paul is going to warn Timothy to have nothing to do with a faith that is powerless to change his mind and transform his heart. So the key challenge for us today is, does your faith have the power to change your mind? Does your faith have the power to transform your heart? Open your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to work through uh, all of these verses uh, this morning. Now, this chapter is three sections in verses 1 through 9. Paul is going to talk about negative examples in verses 10 through 13, he's going to talk about his own example. And then in verses 14 through 17, he's going to set up the principal challenge uh, for Timothy on how Timothy can make sure that his 
mind is being changed and his heart is being transformed. And that's those famous verses about Scripture in the chapter in verses 16 and 17. So let's begin in verse 1. Remember the challenge. Does your faith have the power to change your mind? Does your faith have the power to transform your heart? Notice how Paul begins in verse 1. He says, but mark this. Now, this word mark this is the word know. It basically means to know experientially. Not know in your mind, but to actually know in the depths of your being. Know this. What do we need to know experientially? There will be terrible times in the last days. Now, when you read that phrase, in the last days, we think that Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, after you're dead, then there are just going to be terrible times. So just enjoy the great time that you're having right now. It's actually not what it means, right? In the last days here, from verse 5, we recognize that Timothy is already living in those last days. What Paul is about to write in verses 2 through 4 actually applies to Timothy right now. It's not that, Timothy, you think you've got it bad, but the people living in Holland in 2023, they've got it even worse. That's really not his point. His point is, look, the last days have been ushered in through Christ, and in these last days, there is going to be behavior that is just typical of what happens when people don't have their minds changed and don't have their hearts transformed. There is this cycle of behavior that constantly happens when mind change and heart transformation doesn't happen. That's his, his point. So, Here's the thing, if we want to live faithfully devoted to Christ then, the worst thing that we can do is to read the behaviors that we're about to read and think, okay, if I want to live faithfully devoted to Christ, I shouldn't do these things. Folks, that's legalism. That's antithetical to the life of the Spirit. No, what we need to think is, man, if I'm not having my mind changed and my heart transformed, this is the kind of thing that is prevalent in my life changes this a little bit, right? But it comes back to that question again, does your faith have the power to change your mind? Let me ask you more directly, is your faith changing your mind? <laughs> Do you ever change your mind on anything? Some Christians are actually the worst at this because they think because God never changes his mind, I don't need to change mine either. Does your faith actually change your mind? When was the last time you ever changed your mind on anything important to you? Is your faith transforming your heart? Do people who know you say, man, you have changed, and that's a good thing. If we don't see those kind of behaviors coming from our life, then what we're about to read is the type of behavior that will. This is his point. Let's have a look at this. Verse 2 through 5, we read this. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Now, Paul's point is this. He starts with this love theme in verse 2. He, he kind of wraps it up in verse 4 the same way. His point is when love for ourselves and love for the material world replaces a love for God, then what is following in the rest of these descriptions is effortless. 
Okay, that's, that's his point. So what are the type of behaviors here that are effortless when we love ourselves and we love what's in the world more than we love God? This is what happens. We become boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of ple- pleasure rather than lovers of God. You, you see the love cycle here. Now, just stop there for a second. So loving the wrong things is the reason reason why all of these other things actually happen. Now, Paul's point is not that we shouldn't enjoy the pleasures of the world. Psalm 1611 basically points out that if we love God, then we can enjoy all of the pleasures that God gives. Now, Paul's point is, listen, what we're supposed to do is worship God, love people, use things, but when we worship ourselves, we end up using people and then loving things. And when we do that, all of these other things just kind of fall naturally into place. Now, the question is, why is all of that possible? And that's verse 5. It's possible because we have a form of godliness but deny its power. And this is why the terrible times of the last days applies to Timothy as well, have nothing to do with such people. See, whenever people have a faith that does not result in their mind being changed and their heart being transformed, They have a form of godliness, usually focused on not doing those things between two and four, but it's actually denying the power of God because the true power of God actually comes when our mind is changed because when our mind is changed, our values are changed. When our values are changed, our behaviors change, and it's totally natural to do this. It's flowing from the inside out, not from the outside in. And Timothy is told, have nothing to do with people who value the form of godliness more than the godliness that comes from the Spirit of God, taking the will of God in the Word of God, transforming the mind and the heart of the child of God, allowing them to live like the children of God that they are. Have nothing to do with people like that. Now, Paul is not saying that if someone struggles with rage, struggles with unforgiveness, that we should have nothing to do with them. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about the type of people who have held these kind of false beliefs, these false thoughts for so long that despite being talked to and and corrected and, and people sitting down and wrestling with them, they basically persist in these false thoughts to the point where, and we'll read it now, their minds are completely corrupted and depraved. He's not talking about all of us who struggle with some of those things in this vice list in, in these verses. He's talking about those people, those teachers who should know better, but they don't because they've never, ever faced rebuke, correction, and uh, reproof. They've never done it. And so this is the type of person that Timothy is supposed to avoid, verses 6 through 9. These people... They have a form of godliness and deny its power. They are the kind to worm their way into the homes, into the house churches of Ephesus, and they gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this ties us back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 with the passage on women, why they needed to be silent. 
okay? The men wouldn't allow the women to learn, so Paul says, let a woman learn. It's the only command in that entire chapter. The, the command isn't be silent. The command is learn. Why? Because the women were being led astray by people who were teaching things that were wrong, and despite all of the efforts of Paul and the apostles, they never changed their mind, and as a result of that, their hearts weren't being transformed, and they were, we'll see it in a second, basically in a lot of trouble in God's eyes. It goes on, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They're men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, again, let me repeat this. Paul is not describing people here who do not know Jesus. He's describing people who claim to know Jesus and who claim to be teachers of the Word, who claim to be mature, who claim to know what they're talking about. He's not talking about those people who are new in their faith, who have things to learn. He's not talking about those people who may struggle with, say, unforgiveness and rage because of behavior that is being done to them by other people. He's not talking about those kind of people. He's talking about the kind of people who claim to know what they're talking about. Timothy, Paul says, I'm nothing to do with these people. Specifically, he's talking about those teachers who had wormed their way into the homes of Ephesian church members and were teaching things that weren't true, and they had no accountability for it because there was nothing anybody could say to change their mind. Now, verse 8, if you look at it, okay, um, back at verse 8, these are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. This literally reads, these are men who have been corrupted in mind, who are worthless concerning the faith. Note that, please. Pretty strong rebuke. These are men who have been corrupted of mind and who are worthless concerning the faith. So, why did these people get off track? Here's the why. Their mind became corrupt. What happened? What was the consequence of their mind being corrupt? Look at the text. Does the text say that the consequence is that their ministry was fruitless? No. It says that their ministry was worthless. This is why it was so hard for Timothy. It was so hard for Timothy because he was ministering in a city that would prove to be extremely important for the development of the church. Uh, the canon that we read was closed at Ephesus, and the ministry of these false teachers was not fruitless even though God thought it was worthless. The ministry of these false teachers was bearing fruit, which is why in two personal letters to Timothy, much of that focuses on telling Timothy how to deal with the false teacher's wrong teaching. Their ministry was not fruitless, even though God deemed it to be worthless. Think about the application of that. How many of you have ever been wronged by a person who's got away with it? How does it feel? 
How many of you have ever lost a business deal because the person you lost it to basically broke the rules? Timothy's in a situation where the people who are thriving are the people who are deceiving. And he's struggling with it. Paul, it shouldn't be this way. Surely the righteous should prosper. Surely the ones who speak the truth are the ones who actually God should bless. And Paul says, it's never been that way. It's always been a different way. We're in Holy Week. Today's Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, crowds on the sides of the street, waving palm branches, and the disciples were there thinking, this is awesome. Jesus is about to take back his kingdom. These Romans are going to be kicked out once and for all, and this thing's going to be good. And then the events of this week go on, and we realize that they got it all wrong. And what we have theologically is inserted into this is this concept of delayed judgment that something needed to happen before God's kingdom could fully come. It was the penalty for sin needed to be paid. The power of sin needed to be broken. Jesus needed to ascend so that the Holy Spirit could descend. And right in this text and in many of our lives, we struggle with the same issue that Timothy is struggling with, that there are times when those who are wrong seem to win. Those who are evil seem to prosper, and the righteous are the ones who seem to struggle. John the Baptist struggled with this. Matthew chapter 11, he's in prison. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for somebody else? Now, what's ironic with that, of course, is that what there was twice in John's life where he recognized who Jesus was. The second time, John recognized who Jesus was, was when Jesus was coming down to the waters of the Jordan, and John looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People think that John the Baptist knew who Jesus was because they were cousins. In truth, John lived as a hermit out in the desert, away from Jesus. He hadn't seen Jesus for a long time. It wasn't actually flesh and blood that received, revealed this to John. It was actually the Spirit of God. And we know that because the first time that John uh, identified Jesus was within the womb. As Mary was running to Elizabeth, both women pregnant, Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, you're pregnant, aren't you? Because the baby in my, my womb leaped for joy. So, John was the type of person who knew who Jesus was because it had been revealed to him supernaturally by things that people couldn't see. And yet, John, when he's in prison and emotionally, life, his life and his ministry is not going the way he thought it should go, he basically starts to doubt himself and Jesus. And he sends the disciples, his disciples, to Jesus, saying, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, yes or no? And Jesus says to the disciples, go back to John and tell him everything that you've seen. Uh, the, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and guess what? Even the prisoners are being set free. <laughs> and John's like, Jesus, uh, you can't know where I am, right? 
I'm in prison, and you know why I'm in prison? I'm in prison because I told Herod that what he was doing with that woman was not right. If you're releasing prisoners, please release me, because my experience isn't what you're saying. But what we know from the text is what Jesus does is He cites the, the book of Isaiah ending before the proclamation of judgment coming upon evil. What the work of Jesus did was ultimately delay judgment. Why is the judgment delayed to the point where evil people, even false teachers, seem to prosper in the righteous struggle? Why? And the answer is so that the gospel could be preached and more people can voluntarily respond to Jesus in this life so that they don't do it involuntarily in the next. Because believe me, there will come a time where we will see Him face to face, and in that moment, we will bow the knee. But by that time, it will be late. John wrestled with this. The disciples at Easter for three days wrestled with this. Timothy wrestled with this. Wrestling with the fact that all too often what we experience is the fruitfulness of evil when the righteous suffer. And why did, why did these false teachers do this? Because they were evil people? No, because they were corrupt in mind. There was nothing anyone could say to change their mind. As I think about this, something strikes me. What strikes me is that these false teachers were thinking that they were being successful, and yet God thought that their ministry was worthless. You know what this tells me? Sometimes I can be successful in my own eyes, but not successful in God's eyes. It tells me that there is something worse than winning at things that matter to people. It's actually winning at things that don't matter to God. And this is what Paul is asking Timothy to believe. Timothy, he'll go on to this in a moment. You, you know the truth. And for all of us, just like Timothy, there, there may be times, this may be that time, where you are being asked by God to believe the truth, even though what you see with your eyes and feel in your heart is completely the opposite. Delay judgment is the reason. But God wants you to know that you will prevail, you will overcome, and that God will be glorified. The other thing that strikes me, if I look at the progression of this, corrupt minds leads to a corrupt heart that leads to a ministry that God deems worthless. The other thing that strikes me with this is that maybe the worst thing I can do with passages of Scripture like this is to think that these false teachers are nothing like me. I used to think when I read passages like this that these false teachers were just evil people. I mean, think about it. Only evil people ever boast in such a way that it expresses confidence in themselves rather than God, right? Only evil people do that. Or none of us ever have the tendency to think that we know better than other people, right? And, of course, there, there is no child here that has ever asserted themselves so positively that their parents feel dishonored. None of us have ever done that. 
We sometimes think that to do the kind of things that Paul mentions in verses 2 through 4, we must be an evil person. The reality is subtly different. To do the things listed here, we need to be so driven by what we think is right that no one can ever tell us that it's actually wrong. And if that's the way we live, one act of pride, one act of confidence, one act of boasting develops into multiple acts. And as we heard in week number one, it's multiple acts that ultimately build character. In chapter one, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I want you to remember that you were not given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. I want you to stir up that gift within you, and you will become courageous. What Paul was not saying is that the Holy Spirit will give you a courageous character from day one. What Paul was saying to Timothy was the Holy Spirit can make it possible that in any given moment you can be brave. And if you are brave in any given moment, over and over again, one act of bravery leads to another another act of bravery leads to another act of bravery, and soon that bravery will make a courageous character. What works positively in chapter 1 works negatively in chapter 3. It is possible for all of us to become that type of person when our minds become corrupt. See, what we choose to believe influences our passions, and it affects what we pursue. And this is where this lands for me, just being vulnerable for a moment. It seems to me that when I read Jesus, Matthew 23, and when I read Paul, especially to Timothy, there is something worse than you and I not living out our convictions. For some of us, that is our battle. We struggle to share our convictions. We struggle to live by our convictions. But I want you to know that in chapter 3, there is something far worse than you and I not living out our convictions. Namely, being convinced that what we are pursuing reflects God's heart when it doesn't. This is a challenge for me because I'm a Welshman. I'm highly driven, very passionate. The curse of the driven, the curse of the passionate, is that the very passion that drives me may well be the very thing that drives me off the road. And then I will soon find myself in a place where my ministry, in God's eyes, is worthless. And see, if I am unwilling to embrace correction, before I know it, my mind will become depraved. My ministry is worthless. And so one of my biggest fears is not that I will ever be insincere. No, my biggest fear is that I will be sincere, but sincerely wrong. You know, for many people out there, go look it up. Dictionary definition of integrity. We need leaders of integrity. You know what integrity dictionary definition is? Dictionary definition of integrity is no gap between a leader's beliefs and their actions. That's what integrity is. And so we hear it, even in Christian literature, over and over and over again, that we need Christian leaders of integrity, Christian leaders who, in whom there is no gap between their conviction and their lifestyle. I want to tell you, my biggest fear is not 
that there will be no gap between my conviction and my lifestyle. My biggest fear is that I will be convinced, but totally wrong. See, integrity means whole. My biggest fear is I will be whole and wholly wrong. I will be sincere and sincerely wrong. I will be complete and completely wrong. And I tell you, when I look at the evangelical world and the way we're dealing with issues, I see a lot of people who are deeply convicted. I get emails from people saying, Craig, you need to show your convictions. Friends, there is something far worse than showing your conviction. It's being convinced you're right when you're not reflecting God's heart. And in that moment, God says to Christian leaders, your ministry is completely worthless. And one of the hard things is, depending on the cultural context, that worthless ministry may well be bearing more fruit than faithful ministries. I'll tell you, that's the kind of season we're in. This is what Paul was saying to Timothy. Timothy, I know this is hard, but I want you to stand on the truth. I want you to recognize that there is something far worse, far worse than being insincere, than lacking courage. It's actually showing courage, but you're showing it in the wrong place. This is why in verses 10 through 13, Paul sets a different example. And this is the example he wants Timothy to follow. Paul says this, You, however, Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. Of course, we all know he wouldn't rescue Paul from a Roman prison, right? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Why delay judgment? Why does God delay judgment on the evil to give us more time to preach the gospel to people so that people would bow the knee voluntarily in this life rather than involuntarily in the next? Now, Paul is not shining a spotlight on all of his achievements here. He's just revealing where his values are. He's showing that values for the kingdom, for the truth, for God, drove everything he did and every decision that he made. He's basically talking about a mindset that is driven by discovering God's truth, discovering God's will, a life that finds its purpose in the mission of Christ. Think about this. James picks this up. James, in his letter, writes to business leaders, and he says, woe to you business leaders. You say, today and tomorrow, I'll go to this city or that city, and I'll do this or that. But do you not realize God, is this against you? You do not ask, does the Lord will? If you look at this, in in James, this business guy has the hallmarks of every aspect of a strategic business plan. But there's something missing. It's a relationship with God that informs the decisions that he makes. So you've got this conviction through the Scriptures over and over again. It's actually knowledge of God's will recognizing that the Spirit has placed us into Christ. And if we're in Christ, Christ is in us. And because Christ is in us, we live out the life of Christ in everything we say and do. Now, in verses 14 through 17, these are among the most cited verses in Scripture. This is where the chapter comes to its conclusion. This is where the challenge comes to its head. Have a look at what we read here. These are famous uh, Scriptures. 
that we know. So he's used a negative example, he's used himself as a positive example, and now this is the challenge to Timothy. But as for you, continuing what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know that those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here we go. All scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is where the challenge comes to a head. Now, as you look at that text, if I were to ask you to use three words to describe what happens to you when you engage with scripture, what words would you use? I asked a number of people over the last few weeks that same question because there's something that struck me from this. I said, hey, when you engage with Scripture, what happens? Some people say, well, I love engaging with Scripture because God's character gets revealed to me afresh. Other people said to me, Craig, I love engaging with Scripture because it encourages me. Some others said, Craig, I love engaging with Scripture because it inspires me. Others said, Craig, I love engaging with Scripture because when my day is really bad or my struggles are really big, I engage with Scripture and it just gives me hope that it's not always going to be like this. If you were to describe what happens to you when you engage with Scripture, what word would you use? Here's what struck me. No one I spoke to said, Craig, when I engage with Scripture, it rebukes me. Craig, when I engage with Scripture, it corrects me. Craig, when I engage with Scripture, it trains me, it disciplines me. Why was that? Why did, why did no one use those three words? Is it because I got a bad sample group? Hope not. Most of them are a stop. <laughs> or is it because something in our culture doesn't actually lend itself to being rebuked, corrected, and disciplined? Started to get, I, I started to go a little further with this, and I thought to myself, well, in a Jewish context, this whole idea of a rebuke was something that was highly sought after. It was highly prized. And the way that that would work is in a Jewish culture, this rebuke would be done in private and gently first. We know that, right? Matthew 18, if you have a sin against another person, go to them privately first, right? Practicing this idea of private and gentle. And then I started to think about those times when a brother or a sister may have come to me and offered me a public rebuke. And I wondered how often that rebuke was needed because I never allowed Scripture to do it first. Think about it in your own life. How many of you have got fractured relationships with people because either they didn't take kindly to your rebuke or you didn't take kindly to theirs? Could it be that the only reason that the rebuke was more direct and more 
public was because you never listened to the rebuke of Scripture in the first place? How are we ever going to allow Scripture to rebuke us privately, by the way, if we never even read it? i say it again. Maybe there's something about our culture that doesn't like rebuke. Correction means to be restored to an upright place. Trained for righteousness basically means disciplined as an athlete would be disciplined. Maybe there's something in our culture that doesn't want to allow other people, and especially God, to do the correcting work because we're fine the way we are. We just need to love and accept everybody the way they are. That is true. God loves everyone the way He finds them, but He loves us too much to leave us that way. Rebuke. What does the Scriptures do that rebukes us? It corrects us. It disciplines us. Let me ask you this. Do you have a relationship with God that allows you to be rebuked? Again, I'm a Welshman. I am passionate. I am driven. I have very clear convictions on a lot of things. And so what I will often do is when we're going to discuss some of those things I have deep convictions of, I will go to a person on my team. It's often Pastor Mike. And I will sit in Mike's office and say, okay, Mike, I think I may be in danger in this next meeting. Mike will say, what are you tempted to do this time? And I will tell him. And I'll say, Mike, I need you to keep me accountable to making sure that more than my conviction in this thing, we discern God's heart. See, if you're a deeply convictional, passionate, driven person, the challenge of this text for you is how do you know when you're offline? Far more dangerous for you is not for you to lack sincerity. It's for you to be sincere but sincerely wrong. And there are too many Christians who are sincere and sincerely wrong. Because God doesn't change His mind, they need, never need to change theirs. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be people who, because we are in Christ, have the mind of Christ. We're in Easter week, and I'm going to invite the team to come back. And as they do that, I, I just want to remind you that the events that we celebrate this week are based on a practice called repentance. We remember in the week of Easter that Jesus died, paid the price for our sin. We remember that Jesus was buried and rose again, that He ultimately overcame the power of sin, death, and the grave. We remember that Jesus ascended to the Father so that the Spirit of God could descend. And then we read this in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching, and the people listening to Him said, Peter, what do we need to do to be saved? And what did Peter say? Repent. Metanoia. That word repent means change your mind. A change of mind that leads to a change in purpose and a change in direction. At the heart of the gospel is the belief that we can never have the mind of Christ unless we change our mind on changing our mind. 
And what's the significance of that? Have a look at the text. What's the significance of having a relationship with God where we can change our mind, where our minds can be changed? What's the significance of it? You see there right at the end the, what you call the in our clause, the purpose clause, so that. So that. So what? So what? So that the servant of God, you and I, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does that basically mean? Maybe the reason that we do not experience God moving in us and through us in power is because we have not changed our mind on changing our mind. Maybe to get the power of God working in the people of God far more than ever before, what we need to do is to embrace the fact that when we read Scripture, Scripture, first responsibility is to read us. The next time you pick up your Bible in a quiet time, pray this prayer. Father, I pray that as I read your Word, the Holy Spirit will take the will of God in the Word of God and read me. And I pray that that kind of conviction will become second nature to you so that the rebuke, the correction, the discipline of the Holy Spirit in private will mean that the amount of times that God needs to do that in public through other people will decrease. And rather than saying, you know what, you've really got an issue here that you need to change, I pray that we will increasingly experience people coming to us saying, you know what, there's something about you, you've changed. The kind of change that's powerful is actually change from the inside out. And that's only possible because of the gospel of Jesus. And so I've asked the team to, to sing the song that we're familiar with, Grace to Grace. It's all through grace. It's nothing that we can do. It's through grace, by faith. And so as we sing this song, we're going we're to engage with critical portions of the Easter story. Just sing this song as, your, as a response. And as you're singing this, ask yourself, Am I the type of person who easily changes their mind? Am I the type of person who quickly embraces rebuke? Secondly, do I have the type of relationship with God that God is permitted to change my mind? And again, friends, the more convictional, driven, and passionate you are, the more this message applies. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I thank you for your word that is also true. It's been given to us for our rebuke, our correction, our training, equipping in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every work that you called us to do. Father, may we continue to be people of deep conviction but may your Holy Spirit do such a work in us that we will be able to quickly discern between our convictions and what matters to you. May we run from the idea that what is important is being successful in the things that matter to people. And may we embrace the truth that what matters more than anything else is being successful in the things that matter to you. Father, for those that are here that are struggling right now, maybe in a Timothy-like fashion because they've been wronged, and it seems as though the person who has wronged them has got away with it, may bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and rage just flow from them as they embrace the truth that through the cross 
you have forgiven us fully. And may we, Father, be able to forgive those who have sinned against us. God, we, we thank you for the events of this week. We thank you for the truth of Jesus, for the power of the gospel. And Father, may we repent today, change our minds in the way that we did in that moment where we embraced you for that first time. And continue to make us like that, Father. Change our minds about changing our minds whenever we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Won't you stand with me and just uh, sing this closing song?